Starkville Church of God. This is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you, strengthens you, and fills you with God's love so you can share with others. Enjoy the message. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Reading from the NIV this morning. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we continue this series on the Beatitudes. Would you stretch your hands and pray for me as I do the same for you, Father? We thank you so much for today. Thank you, Lord, for the worship that has gone on and singing and giving. Lord, thank you for the atmosphere that is here. Such a sweet atmosphere here in this place today. Lord, I thank you for every person that has chosen to come and worship here today. And I pray over them. I plead the blood of Jesus over every person under the sound of my voice, those here in the building those listening by podcasts. Lord, I pray that you just open their hearts, minds, and spirits. Let them be receptive to what you want to say to them. Let the word fall on good ground and produce a hundredfold harvest. Lord, I ask that you'd help me today. For Lord, I'm just a mere man. Lord, I'm a mortal. I've got all kind of faults and flaws and failures. And I am so heavily reliant on the anointing of the Holy Ghost of God to help me do what you've called me to do. Lord, give me the clarity of thought and speech that I so desperately need here today. And let me say, God, everything you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less. And Lord, that whatever is done here in this place, that you'd receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. And everybody in the house said, amen. As you're seated, would you turn around to three or four people, give them a fist bump, tell them I'm glad to see you at Starkville Church of God this morning. And I am so glad to see every one of you here today. What a good-looking crowd. I know over the last several weeks of uh, uh, Labor Day and so many things, we've had a lot of folks traveling and all, but it's so good to see so many back here today. Glad that you're with us here at Starkville Church of God. Last week I began, and I'm not going to go over it. If you haven't heard last week's, uh, you can go and you can listen to the podcast. I'm going to just skim the surface, and then we're going to move on to this week's message. I talked about how the Beatitudes was uh, one of Jesus, probably his most famous teachings, and it's from the sermon, a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I uh, talked about the names of the where the name Beatitudes came from. Uh, talked about how each of these had three sections. Uh, we talked about the word makarios from the uh, Greek word uh, that that then has its underlying Hebrew concept. Uh, and again, I don't have time. Go back and listen to that if you don't have time. And then we hit the first beatitude, and that was blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, and again, I'm not going to do that because uh, some of you will be like, I was here last week. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back to the podcast and listen to that. So this week, I want to pick up on our second. And before I do that, I will remind you that I told you, in case you weren't here, that this uh, is not just a pretty picture that I happened to find online. 
This is actually on where they believe, probably in a roundabout area. Of course, they don't know the exact spot where Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the church of the Beatitudes. And if you can see the detail up there, kind of the inside circle under that dome, it is an octagon in that inside room uh, because there are eight Beatitudes, and they are on each of those walls there. So how many of you ever been to Israel before? You know, ever been to Israel? Uh, if you've not been there, uh, then uh, you're like me and would like to go one day. And, you know, this is one of those things I think would be very, very, very cool to see. So that's why that's up there to let you know. So we start on the second of those eight today, and that is blessed are those who mourn. You see, just like most Hebrew poetry, the Beatitudes build on each other. Uh, so when we take these eight, uh, it's not like just one here and one here and they all stand alone. We see a building process like most Hebrew poetry. And again, I don't want you to get confused, but I know y'all are, most of y'all in this room are smarter than I am. But just to remind you, we know that the New Testament was written originally in the Koine or the common Greek of the day. But Jesus, as a Jew, of course, was writing from the mindset of a Jew, from a Hebrew, so it's always beneficial for us to look at both of those things. So as we build, we look at this, and we're reminded that just like in the Psalms, the poetry, this is no different, that it is building on each other. So in other words, as we go back to number one, uh, those who realize that they are spiritually and morally bankrupt without God, remember we talked about the poor in spirit, that there is a natural response. Listen, have you ever come to the place, I kind of mentioned a second ago, where you're like, i got to get my life together. You know, when you come to the place where you realize that, you know, I'm just, I don't have it as much together as I think, and you realize just how imperfect you are, a natural response is to mourn. You know, I, I think about that old song, when my Savior reached down for me, he had to reach way down for me. I was lost and undone without God or his son when he reached way down for me. You know, we come to that realization that God didn't just, I wasn't up on a pedestal somewhere. I wasn't just some great somebody that the Lord thought, man, that Dennis Laughlin, he is great. You know, he is, he's so smart. He's so good looking. He, he's so moral. He, absolutely not. When I remember, when I become poor in spirit as that first beatitude, and I realize just how far down God had to reach to get me. There is a natural response to mourn about that. Now listen to the pastor. This refers to a religious response, not just physical law. Now I know sometimes Brother Eric even pokes fun at himself sometimes, that when he comes up to read the scriptures and he comes and he begins to cry sometimes. But you know, that, that the Bible, you begin to study the Bible and you find that that is a response. You know, all of us are a little bit different. But we find that there is a, a religious 
respond. And I know nowadays people get a bad connotation with that word religious, but do not take that bad. There is a religious, a spiritual connotation to sometimes when God moves on us that there is a mourning, that there is a that there is a crying, a weeping there. And this response is a relig this mourning is a religious response, not just a physical loss, not just, oh man, my 401k just just bought the dust. I'm I'm upset or I just broke my phone. I just broke my phone. I just got it and I broke it. I'm upset. No, not those kinds of things. You see, there is a sinful mourning, which is an enemy to blessedness, the sorrow of the world. You say Jesus had taught and will teach actually later on past this about taking on the burdens of the yoke of the world versus taking on the burden or the yoke of Christ. See, if we're not careful, what we allow ourselves to do is we allow ourselves to take on the worry of this world. We allow ourselves to take on the burdens of this world and the burdens of this society. And, and it weighs us down and it's heavy. And we find ourselves, if we're not careful, mourning over the wrong stuff. Oh, man, I, I got one with, thank you, Sister Jennifer. I got one with me this morning. I said, we find ourselves mourning over the wrong stuff sometimes. If you give me a little more monitor up here. You see, mourning over the loss of temporary things versus, there's a mourning over the loss of temporary things versus mourning over the things of eternal significance. You see, I, I want you to hear this for a second. I, I added this in just this morning because I just felt like the Lord just, just popped this in there. You know, we talk about this morning and the loss of temporary things, and there's some things that God removes from our lives, and we should be glad that he removed them from our lives. You know, sometimes stuff gets taken out of our lives, and we blame it on the devil, but it didn't, the devil didn't have nothing to do with it. Let me just tell you, sometimes... There are some things that God Almighty takes out of your life, and instead of crying and weeping sad over it, you ought to be crying tears of joy over the fact that God got that out of your life because God knew you didn't need that in your life anymore. Oh, can I just preach for a minute? I think there's probably some parents, there's some probably some grandparents here that you've seen God take some people out of your children's lives and they were upset about it and they were devastated about it and they were crying and they were sorrowful. But listen, there's sometimes that God, you know, God took them out of your child's life because they didn't need to be in their life. Listen, it's not just for kids. Sometimes, can I let, how many of y'all? are single here today. Can I see your hand? Come on, don't be ashamed. Put your hand up if you're single here today. You listen to this pastor. There's sometimes God's going to take that man. He's going to take that woman out of your life and you're going to cry and you're going to be upset and that's going to be a natural response but it was God Almighty that took them out of your life because they wasn't no good for you anyway. So I said there's a mourning over the loss of temporary things versus the mourning over eternal significance. Now I ask you then, on the opposite side of that, things that we should mourn over, when's the last time we mourned over lost souls? When's the last time that we were sorrowful and we mourned and we wept and we felt, we felt the significance of the fact that people are 
dying and going to hell every day. In fact, the Scripture tells us that hell is expanding herself. Every day on this earth, there are people that are lost and they're dying and they're on their way to hell if they don't accept Jesus. That, my brother, that, my sister, is something that I believe God does want us to mourn for. Much of the wording and concept for Matthew's Beatitudes comes from Isaiah 61. The Israelites, in Isaiah 61, the Israelites are in exile as a result of their disobedience and sin. Now, I've seen it go around several times. I've seen it refreshed before. I've seen it just this week going around on Facebook again. There's a big old lion laying there asleep. There's a monkey coming up behind it with a stick. And the quotation is, sometimes things happen just because you do dumb stuff. Can I tell you, some of the stuff that happens to us, we want to blame it on God. We want to blame it on everybody else. There's sometimes that we do stuff, and it's, on our, it's our own fault. Come on, how many of you, I've realized that before, and it's just like, God, this, this one's me, God. I know, I'm, this one's me. I'm the one that messed up. I'm the one that came short. It's my own fault. Israel was in exile in Isaiah 61 as a result of their disobedience and sin. And we find that they are grieving over the loss of friends, over the loss of family, over the loss of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Can I tell you that I read just this week, and I'm sure many of you probably have. I had someone else mention it to me. It's been out about how, how insanely fast the church is declining in America. In fact, I believe it was, they say, by, the, by 2042 or 3, that Christianity will no longer be the majority religion in the United States of America anymore. Folks, when we look at the state of the church, we look at the fact of, of, of how there are so many churches that are just in decline and so many churches that are empty and closing their doors when there are so many things like this that are going on. I believe that it's those things in this beatitude when God said, blessed are those that mourn. He doesn't mean mourn that you broke your phone, mourn that you broke your glasses, mourn that you stubbed your toe. I believe it's things of this kind of eternal significance that God tells us to mourn over. In fact, Jesus himself in Isaiah 53 and 3 was called a man of sorrow. We find that he mourned over the death of his friend Lazarus. He stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He knew he was about to raise him from the dead, but still, he mourned. I don't have time to dig into that one today. We also find that he faced great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he knew that the cross was imminent. And the Bible said that he began to sweat great drops of blood as a man of sorrow. We find multiple times that Jesus would come to a place and he would look over it and he would mourn for Jerusalem and he would mourn for an area and he was saddened by the burden of the fact that people were lost and died. That's what I thought of telling Mourn over. Telling us to have a burden for our city. He's telling us to have a burden for the church. 
If we're going to have any sorrow, it's not supposed to be sorrow. Not sorrow because we didn't get the car we wanted. Not sorrow because we didn't get the exact position we wanted. Not sorrow because we had a, some friend that really wasn't good for us anyway. They'd leave our lives. No, God wants us to mourn over things. Do find that they will You know, that's the great thing about attitude. There's the condition, it's also the that God says when you begin to mourn for the right stuff, you're gonna be comforted. You see, we have a comforter with Jesus later on before he left this earth. He said it's that I go, because if I don't go, the, the promise of the Father, the Comforter, will not come. You see, I read about that, and we read about that Comforter, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. But that Greek word is the word paraclete, and it means simply one that walks along beside. Come on, help me. You sat on the front row. I'm sorry. But he's the one that walks to the Holy Spirit of God. We've got the comforter, the one that walks along beside everywhere we go. When you go to work in the morning, the comforter is with you. When you go to class in the morning, the comforter is still there walking around with you. If you get admitted to the hospital tonight, the comforter is going to be right there beside you walking with you. If you go to the doctor on Wednesday, the comforter is going to be right there with you. Wherever you go, the comforter is the one that is walking along beside. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. How are you going to find comfort? It's not going to be through extra money in your bank account, although that'd be great. It's not going to come by you thinking the right person won an election. No, the way that you're going to find comfort is through the Holy Spirit of God, the comforter of all mankind who will allow him to come in and comfort him. Not only him, but we know, look at the rabbinic writing, writing by the rabbis, that the Messiah called Finichim, meaning the comforter. Aren't you thankful that we've got comfort? We've got comforter in the Holy Ghost. We've got comfort in Jesus the Messiah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I, I find myself, I find myself guilty of some good scriptures that we usually consider funeral scriptures. And sometimes I don't, oh, I don't share them a lot on Sunday morning because I don't want y'all to feel like we've come to a funeral. One of those is Revelation 21 and 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Listen to your pastor this morning. You see, there's, there's coming a day. There's coming a day where the comforter, the Messiah, he said, blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. There's coming a day where 
Jesus himself, praise God. Jesus himself will stand in heaven, and Jesus himself, I, I believe it's going to be the most soft tissue. It could be as fat. I don't know. It's Whatever it is, it's going to be glorious. And he's going to, not like sometimes as a parent, you ever washed your kid's face or whatever, you got to get them eye boogers and all that out and everything, you know. Not that kind. But I I believe it's going to be the Messiah that just ever gently begins to wipe every tear away. You know, I, I don't know about you. I'm thankful. I'm blessed here on this planet Earth. I'm very, very blessed. But this is not the end. No matter how blessed I am, I got, yes, I got 10,000 reasons, as the song said, to thank him. But there's something be even better that's coming. For there's coming a day when we get to heaven that the Savior is going to wipe every single tear from our eye. There'll be no more hurt. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more AIDS. There'll be no more diabetes. There'll be no more heart disease. There'll be no more murders. None of it will be any longer. But the Comforter will wipe every tear. Come on, give God praise if you believe that. And you're thankful for it this morning. Don't panic, I'm just doing two this morning. Some of y'all looking at the clock like, dear Lord, that was just one of them. Thirdly, third one, blessed are the meek. First five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, meekness is one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. Its meaning in the text is further complicated by the nuances of Greek and Hebrew words it attempts to translate. So once again here, just as we have in others, we have this issue where we just take this at face value on the English, especially modern American concept of meekness. You do not get even a fraction of what God is saying. Let's dig into this. It's very similar to poor, which again, as we talked about in that very first one last week, does not refer simply just to the socioeconomic status. There's more to it than that. In fact, most scholars believe that Jesus is alluding to the book of Psalms chapter 37 and verse 11 that says this, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. You see, even a rich king who was righteous would consider himself poor and meek before God if he rules kindly and just. You see, I need you to hear this, and this is, this is something, if you want to tweet it, if you want to Facebook it, if you want to Instagram it, whatever you want to do, I want you to get this this morning. Meekness is not weak. I'm going to say that one more time. Meekness is not weakness. You say, I'm going to give you two things. I won't tell you before I start this why I'm doing this, because some of y'all are going to say, why in the world is he doing I'm going to give you two Greek philosophers what they said, not as though their things are so wise, but it helps you understand the meaning of this word meekness in the Greek language. So there's a guy, Xenophon, 
who describes a wild stallion that has been tamed as meat. The way he understood meekness in that Greek language was not some sick, puny, pathetic, needs-to-be-put-down horse. No. He described it as a wild, powerful stallion that had been broken and tamed as meat. Aristotle defines it as the mean or the middle between excessive, explosive anger and no anger at all. Another parallel between Moses and Jesus in the triumphant entry in Matthew 21 and 5 where Jesus comes riding in on that triumphant Palm Sunday, we find Matthew notes that Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9.9 by being meek. It says he's coming meek and lowly. See, apparently by New Testament times, meek had become a title honoring the Messiah. And perhaps this was based on the description of Moses, because here we go again. Remember, we talked about last week how Moses was that type. Of course, the Bible comes along later in the New Testament and says certainly Jesus was greater than Moses, but Moses was that type of Jesus pointing to the one that was going to come. And in Numbers 12 and 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So clearly Jesus models meekness and not as weakness, but like Moses before him as power under control. I want you to get this picture, this concept in your head that to be meek does not mean that you're powerless and puny and pitiful and pathetic. No, quite the contrary. I believe it also doesn't mean that you're very powerful, very strong, very angry, and you have none of it under control. Because God ain't about that either. Oh, man, can I? I'll just, I'm, I can't. I got the microphone. I'm going to stop for a second. You know, we've lost the concept of self control in Christianity, even. Oh, I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm going to say this. Dear God, especially when we're keyboard warriors, you know, I'm just going to put this out here. I don't care what nobody thinks. I'm just going to say this. I don't care who likes it. I don't care who. You know what? You better get yourself in check. Because meekness is not being weak, pitiful, puny, and pathetic, but it's also not being extremely strong, extremely brave, but also being extremely out of control. Meekness is not weakness, but meekness is having the power, having the ability, having the strength, but it's also you know how to keep yourself in control. Oh, God. You know, I, I, I've looked as to, you know, especially here late, as to say, Lord, what? It's the real definition, your definition of a man. What's the man supposed to be? 
God knows the world sure don't know. And so I say, Lord, what is it? As a pastor, as a husband, as a father, what is it? Am I supposed to just be this wild person that, oh, you do, I'm going to come. Supposed to be just nobody. I just can't do anything. I think I found in the fact of I want to be able. I want to be able to protect my wife, children, my church. I want to be able to do it. But I don't want to be out of control about it either. I, I don't want to be I don't want to be unable at the time. I want to be right, I want to be right in the middle to have control. Control over my life. To know that listen, I you can't you can't listen. Here's a, here's a good one here. And this ain't mine either. I'll give credit. He's he's the superintendent of George County School District now. Jamie got it when he was the principal. You can't throw rocks at every dog that barks. I can't let everything, you know, I can't let everything that everybody does by. But listen, I've got to come to a point where I know there's got to come be a time that I've got to be prepared and know that there's a time as a man that I've got the power, I've got the ability, and I've also got the self-control to know when to protect my wife, when to protect my children, when to protect my church, when to protect somebody innocent around that may not even be, they may be, as Jesus said, who our neighbor was. Parable of the Good Samaritan, anybody remember? Maybe I'll preach one on that before long. Maybe even have to protect somebody else that is weaker and in need of protection. Weakness is not I need to be a man. Listen, I need to be, I need to be ready. I need to, I need to be strong enough. I need to be man enough to do what needs to be done, but I need to keep myself in check and keep myself under control. Meekness is not weakness, but knowing. Keep yourself under control. Don't throw rocks at every dog that barks. Don't get all tore up over every little thing, but be prepared and able to be who God's called me to be. That's not just men. That's parents. I got to keep moving. That was boner. That wasn't even in my notes. Clearly, Jesus models weakness. Weakness, not as weakness. Like Moses before him. Power under control. You see, Moses was mightily used by God. We find that God used Moses to bring about plagues against Egypt. Then in the very beginning of his ministry, he gave him the miracles of throwing down his rod, turning it into a snake. And then he could pick it back up and it would turn back into a rod. He used him in the miracle of saying, put your hand. His hand was normal, and he stuck it in his robe. And when he pulled it out, it came out, ate up with leprosy. And then he stuck it back in there and pulled it out, and it was healed again. We find that in the wilderness, two on two separate occasions. Now, the last one, he didn't do it exactly right, and he paid for it. But he brought water from a rock twice. We find that God gave him the, gave him the ability and the power to rule over a people who were, as the Bible said over and over, a stiff-necked people. Jesus also performed many miracles. He healed people. He cast out devils. 
He walked on water. He raised the dead. He performed many amazing miracles. He stood up, and he, but he also stood up and disapproved those that opposed him. He drove out the money changers from the temple. Yet Jesus Christ was the meekest who had ever lived. One commentator said it like this, the meek are so terrible because they cannot be bought or sold. Their service to others outlives the bullying tyrant. And when that word terrible, I know in our modern context we don't quite get it, but that terrible means powerful, unstoppable. In fact, the Bible uses that army. It uses it describing an army in the Song of Solomon. He says terrible as an army with banners, a mighty army. So that word means the meek, the meek are mighty. The meek are unstoppable because you can't buy them. You can't sell them. Their service is going to outlive a bully. They are there. God's hand is on them. In fact, Paul listed meekness as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And he often associated meekness and gentleness together. I see that. I see that together there. I see that picture of meekness. I like to think of it sometimes as this ginormous bodybuilder that could crush or break anything, but yet being gentle and holding just a newborn baby. And meekness is not weakness. Meekness, power under control. Jesus, if anybody had power under control, it was Jesus. Can you imagine how much control that took for him in his ministry on earth? I mean, just as, just just the you know regular three and a half years of it. I'm not even talking about the cross yet. Just the regular persecution that he would have, the way people would come at him and come against him, and he's he stepped out of glory, giving up so much for them to save them, to redeem them yet they reject him and despise him. And then you go to the crucifixion. Can you imagine the kind of beat it took? Power under control as they spit on him, as they slapped him, as they pulled his beard out, as they beat him with the cat of nine tails, ripped the flesh off of his back. Can you imagine how much meekness, how much power under control it took as they laid him down on those wooden beams and nailed through his hands and feet? They suspended him between heaven and earth and then continued to mock him and yell insults at him. And then one of the other ones hanging with him, one of the thieves would look over and mocked him too. They would say, oh, if you're the Christ, why don't you save yourself? Get yourself off that. What meek Jesus? What power under control? Because in a nanosecond, all Jesus had to do was think the thought. A thousand angels would be dispatched from heaven to snatch him off the cross and annihilate every man, woman, boy, and girl. You ever think that Jesus was weak? Nope. Jesus 
Jesus, power under control. He had that power under control knowing there was a reason he came, knowing there was a reason he was suffering, knowing there was a reason why he was being ridiculed and criticized and mocked and beaten and spit on, died. So Jesus said, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You see, land has been an issue in salvation history since the beginning. Even when we think about the concept of salvation, land has always been a part of it. We can go all the way back to the beginning. Where do we find man the very first time? The Garden of Eden. And what happened as Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they sin, what happens? They get evicted from the land. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. God puts an angel with a flaming sword. Moving on in the story of salvation, Abraham, God speaks to Abraham, and he says what? Get up and go to the land which I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Abraham makes a journey there. Now we know later on, that Jacob would then, by the plan of God, had to take them to Egypt. Why? Because the Bible tells us that Egypt would essentially serve as an incubator to grow Israel's household and to, to, to give them the goods and, and, the, and the, the gold and the silver and everything that they would, they would rob Egypt. Basically, even though Egypt gives it over to them, they come out of there. But it was Moses then that had to do what at that point? That's 450 years in bondage. It was Moses that God led to do what? Take him back to the land of Israel. As I mentioned before, because of their sin, they were exiled, taken out of that land. But then as I read in the offering from the book of Nehemiah, what happened? Then they returned to the land of promise. Just this week, if you're on Facebook, then you probably saw I shared you know that I don't claim to be some kind of great prophetic end-time teacher by any means, but just in case you haven't seen it, you know, there's, there's some things in the Bible that the Bible says have to happen before the end time, before the tribulation comes. We know that Israel would become a nation again, and sure enough, in 1948, unlike any other nation in the history of this planet, a nation had been scattered for thousands of years, but yet God did what? He brought them back together and put them right back in the spot where they were before this same spot that Abraham had been, and then Moses took them back to it, and then Nehemiah took them back to it, and they were gone, and then in 1948, they came back to it again. We know that Israel had to become a nation. We also see in Scripture that in the end times and the tribulation period, we find that the temple will once again be rebuilt in Jerusalem and that the Old Testament sacrificial system will, once again, I believe it's going to be supported by the Antichrist because we find in Scripture the seven-year seven tribulation, we find that the Antichrist is in support and Israel loves him for the first three and a half years until the middle of the tribulation and that is where the abomination that causes desolation happens sacrifices stop, 
I don't, this is not a revelation study, but again, we're talking about the land and how important it has always been in salvation. And I just want to insert what's going on because some have even messaged me and say, what in the world do these red heifers have to do with anything? So right now, since Israel ceased to exist in AD 48 or 52, I can't remember. Now for the first time, the required red heifer for sacrifice has been brought back to the city of Jerusalem. Now, no, right now the temple's not standing. No, we know that. But all that is is just another indication of the one that came meek and lowly the first time. He's about to come back again. But the next time he's not coming back meek and lowly. The next time he's coming back is conquering king. But we find, I've said this, the meek will inherit the earth land. It's always been an issue in salvation history. So now we find Israel back in that same land. Seems like every year or two or so, you turn on the news and what's happening? Israel and Palestine are fighting over the Gaza Strip. There's conflict over the land. Why? Because land has always always been an issue in salvation history. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you better start getting ready and you better start watching because it's still an issue today. And you listen to the pastor. According to this book, Israel will never not be a nation again. It's there to stay. And so in our salvation story, land is still a part of it. It's an indication. The very fact that that Israel is on that land is an indication that this book is true. Can I tell you, you couldn't, nobody could have possibly just made this up on their own. It is an all-knowing, all-powerful God that put this together and gave it to me and you. Amen. Our musicians come and take their place. The meek will inherit the earth. We find that those that, according to Jesus himself in Matthew 23 and 12, those who exalt themselves will be abased. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. In other words, those who would seize the earth would lose it. It can only be received as There is coming a guy, Antichrist. He's going to lead a coalition, nation. He's going to try to take over. I mean, let's just be honest. Some, sometimes we get all tore up over stuff, but from the beginning of time, I mean, people have been going back and forth, conquering, taking land, taking territory. People's always building new houses. They ain't making no new land. I'm on somebody. Drive around Starkville. I mean, they're always building something just right down. Oh, oh, I can't remember what they There's so many of them now. They're building one now. Always building, but they ain't making no more land. Beak will inherit the earth. It doesn't matter what you try to do. If you tried to conquer, if you tried to buy up, if you put together an army and the Antichrist will put together an army, but he'll be unsuccessful in the end. Because in the very end, 
there's coming a conquering king who was meek and lowly but now he's coming as a king of kings and a lord of lords he'll take possession of this world once again and if you won't there'll be a thousand years of peace the millennial reign of Christ and if you want a piece of it you're not going to be able to buy it from your local real estate agent Bible said the meek will inherit the earth. The only way you get it is by being humble and obedient and meek and you can only receive it as a gift from him. Stand with me if you will please. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What bothers you? What, what makes you mourn? What makes you sad? Is the right stuff making you sad? Are you letting the wrong stuff make you sad for no reason? For if you mourn over the right stuff, you'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Are you pitiful? Are you a pitiful, powerless Christian? Are you a powerful, out-of-control person? Neither one of those is what the Lord said. Because remember, meekness is power under control. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are the army of Christ. He doesn't want a bunch of weak, pitiful, puny soldiers. He wants powerful men and women of God that know how to keep themselves in control and listen from the orders of the commander-in-chief. For they will what? Inherit the earth. If you want an inheritance from the Lord, be meek. Keep yourself under control. Thanks for listening to our podcast. To find out more about us, follow us on social media at Starkville COG. Special thanks to those who generously support this ministry. If you would like to give, visit us at startvillecog.com forward slash give. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.